Well, take your Bible and turn with me again to 1 Samuel chapter 10. We're in uh, chapter 10 in our study. We won't make it all the way through 1 Samuel uh, this summer, but uh, we'll get as far as we can. But today we're focusing on 1 Samuel 10 verses 17 through 27. So after you've found that in your Bible, stand with me and let's uh, read it together and then we'll look at it in uh, some more detail here in just a little bit. Verse 17, Therefore Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you have today rejected your God, who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses. Yet you have said, No, but set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Thus Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families, and the Matrite family was taken. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, they could not find him. Therefore, they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, Behold, he is hiding himself by the baggage. So they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So the people shouted and said, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in the book and placed it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his house, Saul also went to his house at Gibeah, and the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But certain worthless men said, How can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present. But he kept silent. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, ask this morning that uh, you would uh, help us to Know your truth today. Lord, as every week we look into your word, Lord, we pray that this morning you would just help us to glean insights and to have deeper understanding of what you want us to be as a people. Lord, that we would, in fact, be that individually as believers, that we would be following the truth of your word And, Lord, also corporately, together as your church, that we would be honoring you. And unlike uh, a popular preacher that said this week that we need to become unhitched from the Old Testament, we know that the Old Testament is just as inspired as the New Testament. It is all your word, and it uh, lays the foundation and the basis for uh, your truth of the new covenant in the new testament so lord we know all of your word is important and so lord help us from to learn uh, from your word this morning 
And, Lord, we pray that uh, you would just uh, be with us as, as we worship, that our hearts would be set on you, that uh, we would put aside any distractions, anything that might take our, our mind away from you and your worthiness. And, Lord, that we might just totally focus on you this morning. And, Lord, we thank you. And we know this is a wonderful privilege that we enjoy uh, weekly. So, Lord, thank you for it. And help us all to benefit from it the way you intend. In Jesus' name, amen. The CEO of a small company needed to call in one of his employees about an urgent problem with one of their main computers. When he dialed his home phone number, he was greeted with a child's whisper. Hello? Feeling a little irritated... By the inconvenience of having to talk to a youngster, the boss asked, Is your daddy home? Yes, whispered the small voice. May I talk to him? To the surprise of the CEO, the little boy said, No. So he took a little different strategy. Wanting to talk with any adult, he asked, Is your mommy there? Yes, came the answer. May I speak with her? Again, the small voice whispered, no. Knowing that it was not likely that the young child would be left at home alone, the boss decided that he would just leave a message with the person who was there watching over the child. He asked, is there anyone else there besides you? Yes, whispered the child, a policeman. Wondering what a cop would be doing at his employee's house, the boss asked, May I speak with the policeman? No, he's busy. Busy doing what? The boss asked the child. Talking to daddy and mommy and the fireman, came the whispered reply. Growing concerned and even worried as he heard what sounded like a helicopter through the earpiece on his phone, the boss asked, what's that noise? The boy said, it's a helicopter. What is going on there? The CEO is now alarmed. In an awe-inspired voice, the child said, the search team just landed in the helicopter. Now, totally frustrated, the boss asked, what are they searching for? Still whispering, the little voice on the other end of the line said with a giggle, me. (laughs) Have you ever played hide and seek? If you hide really well, it can cause quite a bit of alarm. I remember very vividly one time when we were in a department store, and all of a sudden, little Jacob was nowhere to be found. And we began to panic, and we ran all over the store looking for him. We ran out into the parking lot. We started asking people if they had seen a little boy, and we were right on the verge of calling the police. 
And then all of a sudden, we saw two little legs down below a coat rack, and he was just sitting there. And we asked him why he just sat there. He said, well, I knew you were looking for something, but I didn't know what it was. Well, in our text this morning, we find a hide-and-seek tale. Young Saul decides to hide among some equipment on the day that he was supposed to be installed as the first king of Israel. But in this case, the game is rigged because God himself tells Samuel where he is. And they pull him out from his hiding place and they begin to shout, Long live the king. Probably not the most stellar way to announce the coronation of the very first king of Israel. It's not a good thing when the new king is announced, but he's nowhere to be found. In this case, the son of Kish seems to be as lost as his father's donkeys were. But this made for a very memorable Moment, And I'm sure no one in Israel would ever forget the day that they had to pull their new king out from among the baggage to make him king. What we have in our text this morning is the public coronation of King Saul. And as I'm sure you remember, he has already been anointed king by Samuel privately. In chapter 9, his father's donkeys are lost, and he goes out with his servant looking for them. When they can't find them, they end up going to Samuel's house, and God tells Samuel to anoint him king of Israel. And although Saul protests that he is unworthy, Samuel has a big feast in his honor and honors him by giving him the choice portion of the meal, and then privately pours oil on his head, anointing him. In chapter 10, we see a series of miraculous signs that verify this is all of God. But when he gets back to his house and his uncle asks where he's been and what's been going on, he says nothing at all about the kingdom. The Holy Spirit had fallen on Saul to enable him to serve as king. But when we get to chapter 10, verses 17 to 27, we see what we would not expect. You would think that by this time, Saul would be strutting around saying, I'm going to be the next king. But instead, we find him hiding on his coronation day. What's up with this? I think we can learn a lot from this. Now, we're going to take this brief passage in seven parts today. I did so well getting through eight points a few weeks ago. Surely it'll be easy to get through seven uh, today, right? I think there are seven distinct elements in this text. And we begin with the scolding. The scolding. Look with me at verse 17. Therefore Samuel called the people together to the Lord 
at Mizpah. You probably remember that it was at Mizpah where the great revival had taken place back in chapter 7. It was here where they had removed all their idols as verification of genuine repentance and God had given them then a miraculous victory over the Philistines. And I'm sure a gathering of all Israel to Mizpah would have brought back wonderful memories of that occasion. But this time, Samuel called them together for a different reason. This time, it is to announce the king that they have demanded. This time, it is to make known the Lord's choice of Saul. Go on to verse 18. And he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you today rejected your God who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses. Yet you have said, no, but set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Come on, Samuel. I mean, you're ruining the moment. Can't you say something positive? Why do you have to keep rubbing our noses in the fact that we are rejecting God by demanding a king? Once again, we see the character of a faithful prophet. He doesn't give what the people want to hear. He proclaims the truth even if it is not popular. Here he keeps hammering away at their stubbornness, even if he has already said this before. And we know that Samuel already made this point back in chapter 8, verses 6 through 22. He's already preached this sermon. He has already warned the people what it will be like to have a king. And he's already declared that this is a rejection of God from God's own perspective. But here he hammers it again. And because this is the formal public ceremony for crowning Israel's first king, he wants to say one more time exactly what this amounts to from God's perspective. After all, if this is indeed the case, that God's people, by demanding a king, are rejecting his rule over them, then how could the prophet stand up and just say, ladies and gentlemen, it's so good to see all of you here on this happy occasion? No. He can't do that. Yes, they are going to get a king like they want, but it is incumbent upon the Lord's prophet to remind them this is not God's perfect will. It is something that he is allowing because of their stubbornness. But the point is that genuine prophets do not shrink back from proclaiming the truth, even if it is difficult to do so. Sometimes truth comes before propriety. Sometimes truth must come before decorum. Sometimes truth must come before positivity. 
Davis writes, Israel's God may love us too much to be nice. His word may pursue us relentlessly until we hear it. He may even ruin a nice occasion if it will get our attention and lead us to repentance. So here we see an important purpose in the scolding. But there's a second element that we find here, and that is the selection. Look with me at verse 20. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families, and the Matride family was taken, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. The casting of Lot's is a common way of revealing God's will under the old dispensation. It is part of that many portions and many ways in which God spoke to the fathers long ago that we see in Hebrews 1.1. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The people of Israel in that day and time trusted this method of casting lots as being a legitimate way of knowing God's will. And, of course, this is not something that we should be doing today. But in this case, this was a way in which the people would know without a doubt that Saul was God's choice. And Samuel walked them through this process of verification, even though God had already revealed to him privately that Saul was going to be the king. It was a way of demonstrating divine authority in the selection of Saul. And the casting of lots started with the tribes, and then it whittled down to the clans, and brought it then down to the family, and then eventually down to the individual, so that there could be absolutely no doubt Saul was God's man. Oh, but there's one slight problem. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken, but when they looked for him, he could not be found. So the third point in our outline is the surprise Where is the new king? It's like the royal trumpets are blown and Saul is announced, but the stage remains empty. Where is he? How awkward. Some heads in the PR department are going to roll for this. Surely the helicopters are going to swoop down at any moment. This is the unexpected twist in the plot of the story. You know, it's like watching a Hallmark movie. You just know it's coming, right? This leads us to point number four, the searching. The searching. Look at verse 22. Therefore, they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, Behold, he is hiding himself by the baggage. Now, this, there's an interesting detail here that I think we need to see. First of all, the structure of this text 
places the hinge of the text right here at verse 22. This becomes even more significant when you remember that the Hebrew word for found is mentioned 12 times in the previous section. The donkeys were found, money was found, people were found, and this seems to be a literary device employed by the author. And interestingly, in verse 21, we're told that Saul was not found. But then we're told, here in verse 22, he was found. He was first found by God, now he's found by the people. And I believe there's a subtle irony intended here. Perhaps the lesson is that on her own, Israel is just as incapable of finding a king as Saul was incapable of finding the lost donkeys. But at the focal point of this text... The finding of their king is possible only through the mighty hand of God. And they can't even find their chosen king without his help. And by the way, before we move on, notice that word baggage there. This is how the New American Standard, American Standard translates the Hebrew word kelai. Uh, that word has a lot of possible meanings, including things like armor, articles, baggage, cargo, clothing, equipment, furnishings, implements, etc. This simply means he was hiding in a good hiding place. Don't read into this some message about getting rid of your baggage, okay? I mean, I saw several sermons online that grab hold of the English translation of the word baggage and build an entire sermon on getting rid of your emotional baggage. Folks, that is a typical misinterpretation and misapplication of this text. That is not what this is saying. He's just hiding among the equipment, okay? It doesn't have anything at all to do with getting rid of your emotional baggage. But the real question is, why is he hiding? The traditional answer is because he is shy or humble, but that may not be the case. What we will discover about Saul, I believe, is that his greatest weakness is fear. Fear. And we're clearly going to see that he falls into the danger of the fear of men but he will also exhibit other types of fears. And in contrast to David, his lack of courage will become glaring. And perhaps this is first seen in back in chapter 9 when Samuel asked him, and to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and all your father's family? And Saul's response was, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me in this way? 
Saul perceived of himself as a nobody. He was small in his own sight. And just as Gideon had done, he said, in essence, who am I to deliver Israel? He didn't seem to have any concept at all of the fact that if God called him to this task, he would also enable him to perform it. For one thing, hiding like a child among the baggage tells us that he had a problem following his emotions. I mean, he just did it in response to some kind of emotion. But fear seems to be the biggest emotion that he struggled with. And we might think that becoming a king would be a great thing. But remember why the people wanted a king. They wanted a king to fight their battles. Is it possible that Saul was not ready for that? He was young and inexperienced. And we see a clue later when Goliath comes on the scene. We find Saul cowering in his tent, shaking in his sandals. And even later, his pursuit of David indicates his fear and insecurity. This seems to have been a problem that plagued Saul throughout his reign. And we know that later on he will sin a great sin against God because of his fear of the people. But here he may just be afraid of the Philistines or the Amorites. And perhaps he's thinking that if he's crowned king, that he might become the target of a paid assassin. So he's afraid, and he's hiding. And by the way, before we move on, Satan loves to use fear in our lives as well. Fear can become a paralyzing factor that brings much destruction into our lives. Living by fear is the opposite of living by faith. And the devil knows that. And any time he can get us to fall into that trap, he will do that. Now, that's probably another sermon. But this is likely, I believe, what's going on in Saul's life. He is afraid and he's not trusting God as he should be. And we're going to see that he didn't really have the character to be the kind of king he could have been. And, of course, we already know that he turns out not to be a good king because we're looking back in history. And you and I already know that Saul turns out to be a disaster of a king. But I believe he could have been one of the greatest kings of all if he had overcome his fear and learned to trust in Yahweh with all his hearts. Well, point number five is very brief. But in verses 23 and 24, we see the stature. Look with me at verse 23. So they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. Now I've already talked about his impressive physical stature. He is 
taller than any of the people of Israel. He is handsome in appearance. And from merely a physical standard, you could not find a better candidate for a king. He looked so small among the baggage, but when they got him out of there, he was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. Surely this one would be able to go and fight their battles. And no doubt this is what they were thinking. So they all began to shout, long live the king. Now, you know, we're used to hearing that slogan in regards to royalty But this is where it originated, right here. This is the first time a phrase like this was used. They finally have their coronation. Once they find their king, they're off and running. Oh, but we have another interesting detail in verse 25a. So the next thing we see is the statutes. Look at verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in the book and placed it before the Lord. Now, when you first read that phrase, ordinances of the kingdom, you may think of the warnings that Samuel gave to the people in chapter 9 of what a king would do and what he would take from them. That's not what this is. We might call the warnings that he gave in chapter 9 the privileges of the king, but here we have the ordinances of the kingdom. This is different. These ordinances that God gave concerning the time when Israel would have a king are ordinances that have to do with making sure that even under a monarchy, the nation of Israel would continue to be under the Lord's authority and follow his standards. Where do we find these ordinances? In Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. So turn with me for a moment to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, let's read these together, beginning in verse 14. It's important we see this. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not of your countrymen. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, 
by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, in order that he and his sons may continue long in the kingdom in the midst of Israel. Now, these were written long before the people ever demanded a king. And this tells us that none of this caught God by surprise. But what did Samuel do here? He wrote these ordinances down in a book or on a scroll, and he placed it before the Lord. That is, he put it in the temple, not only to be a reminder for Saul, but for every future king in Israel. And thus, the godly influence of Samuel would be felt for generations to come. Now, we know that ultimately there will be kings of Israel in the future that will violate some of these ordinances. But at least they would know what God expects. And at least these ordinances would be there to guide them and to keep them in God's ways. And these ordinances were to serve to distinguish between Israel's monarchy and all the other monarchies of the world's. In other words, even though Israel would have a king, they would not really have a king like all the other nations. The kings of Israel were to be unique in following the ways of Yahweh. They were not to abuse their office, and they were to govern according to the law of God. Now, Dell Davis points out that the Hebrew word for ordinance here is mispat. And he says, you don't want the kings of Israel mispatting any way they choose. They have to have some regulations to keep them in the role of co-regent with Yahweh. And the Lord God of Israel would still, in essence, be their true king. But their earthly king was bound by these regulations that prevented abuse and tyranny. Well, there's... One final aspect that we see in this account, it is a contrast in response. So lastly, we see the segmentation. Sometimes what happens after the meeting is more important than what happens during the meeting. And we've seen that recently with our president meeting with world leaders. It's no different in this text. Look with me at the last part of verse 25. Then Samuel dismissed the people each to his own home. The coronation is over and all the people are going back home. How did they respond to their new king? Verse 26. And Saul also went to his house at Gibeah. And the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. Saul went back home as well. But now everything is different. All the valiant men whose hearts God had touched accompanied Saul and stayed with him. And we might be surprised at this point that Saul did not immediately occupy a throne in Jerusalem. But remember, Israel had never had a king before this. 
Things were not set up for a king in Israel, in Jerusalem at this point. Now, David would later establish Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. But Saul goes back to Gibeah at this point. And the message of these last three verses is that there are two distinct responses to Saul. On the one hand, the valiant men rally behind him. They accompany him to Gibeah, and they're ready to serve him and defend him. Oh, but there's another response as well. Look at verse 27. But certain worthless men said, How can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present, but he kept silent. While one group was shouting, Long live the king, another group is saying, Who's this guy? Now, who are these critics? Well, they're worthless men, literally sons of Belial. They are contrasted with the valiant men. The Hebrew word Belial literally means without a yoke. In other words, without something above you in the sense of authority. This was an expression that was used to describe something that is completely useless. Why are they useless? Because they have rejected all authority. These sons of Belial are troublemakers. They are rebels. And the truth of the matter is, they would have rejected and criticized any king. They would have rejected anyone who had authority over them. And even though we know that Saul did not turn out to be a good king, at this point, All in Israel should have supported him because he was God's chosen king. But there are always worthless sons of Belial who reject authority. There are always troublemakers. There are always rebels. There are always those who are in the habit of rejecting authority. And these worthless men did not bring any kind of present for the new king. In fact, they had no intention of honoring him in any way. And all they want to do is to criticize, and this type of criticism is not constructive or helpful. It is intended to be hurtful. Today, we might call these haters. Now, For those of you who are over 40 years of age, let me explain to you what a hater is. A hater is someone that is jealous and envious and spends all their time trying to make you look small so they will look tall. Chuck Swindoll has an entire sermon on this one verse entitled, How to Handle Haters. The truth of the matter is, if you are in any position of leadership, you're going to have supporters and you're going to have haters. You're going to have critics. So the real question is, how are you going to handle these critics? Saul handled them by ignoring them, which is usually the best way to deal with them, but sometimes that is not possible. 
And notice what these critics were saying. They were saying, how in the world is this country bumpkin going to save us? What can this hick Benjamite farmer do for us? The obvious comparison for Christians is our Lord Jesus Christ. When he came into the world to be our Savior, people were saying, what can this man do for us? We know his parents. We know he's from this little nothing town. Why, would, why should we believe in him? Now, I'm not implying that Saul was a type of Christ, but I am saying that his coronation got the same type of response. And that is true of anyone in any prominent leadership position. The king causes division. The king causes segmentation. There are always supporters and rejectors. And it's always easier to deal with critics when they're on the outside than to face those who are on the inside. These worthless men were not Philistines or Amorites. They were fellow Jews. And in the same way today, it's always easier to accept criticism from unbelievers than it is to have critics in church. We expect unbelievers not to have a clue, but we expect support from those who are fellow disciples of Christ. But even those who are called by God to lead the church can have haters at times. And there are all kinds of applications that we can get from this last section of this passage. One is the truth that both courage and criticism are contagious. People can learn and be inspired by your courage, but they also can be brought down by your criticism. Your critical spirit can infect someone else, especially if you start meeting with other people to complain about the current leadership. And notice the stark contrast in this passage. There are the valiant men who get involved in encouraging and strengthening the nation. And at the same time, there are worthless men who get involved in tearing it down at a time when they really needed unity. And so it is in the church. You have to decide if you're going to be on the building crew or the wrecking crew. You have to decide if you're going to be a team player who encourages and builds up the body or if you're going to be a sour critic who tears it down. Another important principle here is that even though there are always going to be critics, those in leadership should always seek to respond to them in Christian love. Sometimes the best response is to ignore them like Saul did, but sometimes we have to deal with their poison. But anytime we have to do that, we always need to do that in a spirit of love and patience. And notice in this passage that Saul ignored them. He didn't, he didn't knock them into next week. He didn't uh, have them put to death. He didn't go on Twitter and blast them. No, he held his peace. 
He kept silent. And the application for us in this that is that sometimes that's our best response. We need to be careful not to let the critics keep us from the work God has called us to do. There are always going to be critics, but we just need to keep doing what we know is right and let God deal with them in His way and His time. Don't give them a piece of your mind. Instead, pray for them and don't let Satan use them as a distraction to draw you away from the things that count. Who was it that was telling Saul, that he would be of little help to Israel. Who was it? It was the worthless men. Those today that we would probably label dysfunctional. These were dysfunctional people. So the principle here is this. Why should I let somebody who can't get it all together keep me from having it all together? Why should I allow someone like that to distract me from that which counts the most? Don't listen to their whining. Just go on and do what you know God has called you to do, and eventually their complaining will become mute. Remember now, Saul was young and inexperienced. He was still wet behind the ears. Surely he would make his share of mistakes, but at this point, he was God's chosen instrument for his people at this time in their history. And he deserved the support of all the people. Well, how do we need to respond this morning? Are there things the Lord is saying to us from this text today? Even though we don't live in a monarchy, even though uh, we're not looking for a king, we can learn about God and His will for us from this passage of Scripture. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that You would help us to apply these truths to our lives. Lord, we thank You that we can learn from history. We know it's Your history, Your story. And Lord, we thank you that uh, these words are inspired of you. They are uh, your truth. And even though it's narrative in form, we can learn lessons from it. So Lord, help us to glean what you have for us this morning. And Lord, again today, we pray that if there's anyone in this place that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they will come to know him today but their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. And maybe there are some this morning that uh, aren't quite sure about it. And uh, they don't have absolute assurance. And I pray that they also would come to that point of knowing for sure. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would just work in our hearts, in our midst today, and do your will. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.